Hi everyone, so today we have here with us Dr. Stephen Hicks. He teaches at Rockford University where he also directs the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship. He is the author of books like Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault and Nietzsche and the Nazis. Additionally, he has published articles and essays on a range of subjects including entrepreneurism, free speech in academia, the history and development, and development of modern art, Ayn Rand's objectivism, business ethics and the philosophy of education, including a series of YouTube lectures. So, Dr. Ricks, welcome on the show. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. It's a real pleasure to have you on. I, I was expecting to have you since the very beginning of my channel. I really admire your work. So Awful. Thanks a lot. How long have you been doing your program? Uh, for more or less two months now. So, All right. Good. All right. Okay. So let's just jump right into the question. So today we're going to talk a little bit about postmodernism. But I guess we can't do this uh, without some very important definitions of modernism and postmodernism. Because I guess sure. that to understand what comes after modernism, we have to understand what modernism is. So, Fair enough. Uh, so could you give us a historical perspective on the origins and development of modernism? Who contributed to it? The main figures of it? and in what ways they, they contributed to it. All right, well, so that's a, a nice big set of questions there. Well, <laughs> modernism uh, historically is broader than modernism philosophically. So if we look at the history of philosophy, right, modern philosophy usually dates from Rene Descartes and Francis Bacon. And so that would be in the early 1600s. Uh, and what is important about them is that they are both fundamentally challenging the epistemology or the theory of knowledge that really had dominated for many centuries. Uh, so the idea that uh, there is faith uh, in, in, in a scripture or faith in an institution like the Catholic Church, uh, and that that should be one's fundamental source of knowledge, right? or if one uh, uh, traces that back to various prophets who have had revelations or mystical insights. So this whole idea that mysticism, revelation, and faith, various non-rational modes of understanding are fundamental, all of the moderns are challenging and rejecting that, and they're replacing it with some sort of reason, right, that individuals have the capacity for reason, Descartes, uh, uh, to use technical language in philosophy, has a more rationalist understanding of reason. Bacon has a more empiricist understanding of reason. So there are internal debates among the moderns. But uh, we start with reason uh, and we build from there. Right? And once you uh, go down that road philosophically, uh, any sort of intellectual authoritarianism by those who claim mystical insights or who claim direct connections to God or the weight of tradition, those become secondary or, or tertiary. And so science as a project uh, uh, starts to take off, right, and so on. Now, historically, right, modernism is broader than that. So uh, if you talk to historians, they will say, well, there's all sorts of things that are going on that transform uh, this from a European perspective, uh, 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 the way we live and do everything, right? So 
you know, at, at the end of uh, the 1400s, right, we have uh, Christopher Columbus crossing the ocean, right, and that transforms the world in a globalist way. We have had for a century in, uh, in Italy and parts of Northern Europe um, uh, a renaissance, right, and a broad movement in humanism, and that's transforming, right, the way uh, we, we think and, and do things. So uh, the world is a bigger place. We're starting to do science. Uh, uh, the, the art is much more worldly, right, and, uh, and focused on human concerns. And then, of course, religion has been transformed as well in the early modern world as a result of uh, Reformation and Counter-Reformation forces. So the historical question then would be to say, what kind of world intellectually and culturally comes out of all of those transformations? And obviously, it looks very different, right, from the world 500 years earlier. So that's that's modernism, right? It's much more worldly. Uh, it's aware of, uh, of of the earth as being much larger. There's a lot more trade. There's a lot more religious uh, diversity that's going on. Science is a is a going enterprise. And then as a result of that, we start to see economic transformations, political transformations, and so on. So all of that is modernism. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So, and before we start to dig a bit into the precursors to postmodernism and its development, what is postmodernism? Well, postmodernism then is a, a, a rejection of all of the important uh, intellectual principles and all of the cultural manifestations of modernism. So, if you say that modernism is about the the, the the fundamental importance and the power of reason, then the postmoderns will mount very powerful skeptical objections against the claims of reason. So the epistemology, right, goes down. The moderns are arguing that uh, science can, in principle, answer any question, right, about the world. The claim is not that we are going to be omniscient, but that scientific method uh, should be used by everyone and applies to everyone, and that it uh, can, uh, with great effort, figure out important truths right about the world. What you find in postmodernism is a, a, a suspicion and often a cynicism, right, about the scientific project, right, as a whole, uh, either a claim that science is just one more way of thinking about the world or talking about the world that has no better claims to witchcraft or or, uh, or or feelings along ethnic lines and so on. So uh, a suspicion or a rejection, right, of the scientific project. Uh, another element that's important to modernism is the importance of the individual, right, that individuals right, need to think for themselves, that we should respect individuals' uh, uh, religious uh, uh, views, uh, including rejection of religion, and we need to be tolerant uh, and give people lots of space to do their own thing when it comes to religion. Uh, in politics, you, we, we need to uh, respect individuals' rights to their own lives, liberty, pursuit of happiness as those individuals conceive it. Typically, uh, uh, there's a kind of free market capitalism that comes out because free market capitalism really is individualism applied to the economic realm. You leave people free to you know, decide what they're going to make, whom they're going to trade with, what they're going to consume. So what we find, though, in postmodernism is a uh, obviously, a, 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 again, a suspicion or an outright rejection and condemnation of any sort of free market capitalism. The, uh, the kind of political liberalism 
uh, uh, that is dominant in modern circles is rejected and we find strong streaks of authoritarian types of political philosophy uh, advocated by, by postmoderns. Uh, kind of in degenerate form, it comes out as political correctness in a, in a small scale where you, you know, really want to control uh, everything other people do and say. But then more broadly, uh, the whole postmodern analysis is not individualist in that it's, it's collective or collectivistic. Uh, they are very much about seeing people as, uh, as, as in-groups fundamentally, as constituted by their group membership. And so we don't really see individuals anymore. Instead, we see members of racial groups in, uh, in conflict with each other, or gender groups in conflict with each other, or ethnic groups in conflict with each other. So it's, uh, it's highly collectivistic, uh, thoroughly, and that then means it rejects all of the individualism on principle and the cultural manifestations of individualism that are characteristic of modernism. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think that was a really good synthesis of it. So, Thank you. Uh, uh, okay, so now to come back a little bit and to try to trace uh, postmodernism to its origins and its development. So, in your book, Explaining Postmodernism, you trace it back at an epistemological level to Kant. Because, yes. because Kant had this uh, epistemological theory where he divided what he called the noumenon and the phenomenon. So yeah. I, I, think, I think it is based on this idea. Could you elaborate a little bit on it? Right. So yeah, postmodernism does draw heavily on the epistemological story, right? And Kant is important here. Uh, on the normative side of things, uh, um, Rousseau, I think, is very important. Uh, but yeah, let's take the, the epistemological story here. Uh, we mentioned earlier Bacon and uh, uh, René Descartes, so in the, in the early moderns. So if we then go back to the early 1600s, there is a philosophical revolution that has high hopes for the power of reason variously conceived. But then if you do a standard story in uh, history of philosophy, you'll trace the developments of empiricism through John Locke, Bishop Berkeley, and David Hume, and then David Hume is the generation before Kant. Right? And if you trace the story on the continental side, right, starting with Descartes, you tell the story that goes through from Descartes through uh, through Spinoza and Leibniz, and then Leibniz again is a generation right before Kant. And the, uh, to, to, to make the, the long story short, this is now a century and a half, uh, uh, both of those traditions run into problems in developing a satisfactory account right, of how reason is supposed to work epistemologically. Uh, either they, they end up being very skeptical about sense perception and its ability to give us direct and accurate knowledge of an external reality, or they uh, reach skeptical conclusions about abstractions and concepts, uh, and not seeing how those can be tied to an external world uh, that exists uh, independently of our minds, or more broadly, they, they, uh, they have troubles understanding uh, propositions and logical formulations and seeing how logical principles uh, and higher order epistemological concepts can actually tell us anything about the way the external world works. So on both the empiricist side and on the, uh, uh, on the rationalist side, we are reaching skeptical conclusions right, about the power of reason. 
So what Kant is doing and why he is brilliant, right, is he's then standing at the head of both of these traditions, looking back and saying, here we have some geniuses, right, in the last century and a half who've been trying to come up with a satisfactory account of reason, and they have failed. Right? And so what Kant wants to argue is that their failure uh, is, is a principled failure. It's not just that we haven't been smart enough or we haven't come up with the right kind of clever argument to give an account of how reason can come to know an external world, but that that project is, in principle, impossible, right? It can't be done. Uh, and so that's why, in his Critique of Pure Reason, he says uh, we need a, a Copernican revolution in philosophy, so the, uh, you know, the, if we go back to Copernicus, right, in the generations leading up to Copernicus, the widespread view was the Earth is at the center and the Sun is a, a satellite, right, of, of the Earth. And Kant is, uh, is saying that what Copernicus did uh, is shifted, right, the focus. It's not the Earth that's at the center, it's the Sun that's at the center. So what we need to do epistemologically is the same thing, right, up until the generation of Kant, what philosophers have said is that the object, the external reality and the objects in reality, they set the standard for what counts as knowledge, what counts as meaning, what counts as truth, but we can't make sense of that, right? So we have to abandon objectivity as the standard. And what we need to do then is reorient and see the subject, right, as the standard. And so what he wants to do then is internalize all of our standards of truth, uh, uh, ultimately meaning and, uh, and knowledge. And so it's a shift from objectivity to a deep kind of subjectivity. Right? Now, that is why I'm pointing out uh, Kant as being the fundamental transition figure. And so what he wants to say is, you know, uh, it's, it's not just that we have some skeptical doubts about the apparatus of reason. He wants to say, as you suggested, in principle, there is no way for us to get past the phenomena. Right, and the phenomena are a subjective construct, right? And they erect a barrier between us and any sort of understanding of what's out there in uh, in the noumenal realm. So reason is in principle incapable of knowing anything right about noumenal. Perhaps it can know that it's out there, right, or at least that we hope that it's out there, and maybe it pro provides some abstract regulative standards to strive for, but we can't actually know anything about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, and since you talked about Rousseau, because it is one of the main figures, one of the main precursors to postmodernism, and yes. to go back to him now before we continue with the story starting from Kant, uh, it, it, we can trace back some ideas relating to collectivism and statism to Rousseau, because on the one hand, uh, philosophically, he was against uh, reason by itself, but on the other hand, when we talk about when we talk about uh, things like uh, political issues, societal issues, um, and technological issues, even uh, he demonized the development of agriculture because, in his mind, agriculture brought about the the idea of property. Uh, yes. uh, because agriculture allowed us to generate a surplus of wealth that, that then ended up in fewer and fewer people, in this idea at least, and this then uh, contributed to inequality among yes. people. 
Okay. Who do you talk about this? Uh, yeah, well, what your summary of uh, Rousseau's core themes are uh, exactly right. And the ones you're mentioning there come out of the discourse on uh, inequality. Uh, and so what you find in Rousseau is he's very much not interested in individual liberty and the individual pursuit of happiness, and all of those are strong modernist and enlightenment themes. Right? He's much more interested in a collectivized kind of uh, equality. And he idealizes a kind of tribal state, not to say that uh, when people lived uh, in, in essentially tribal organization that everything was perfect, right, and wonderful, right, but that it was much better than any of the feudal or early modern proto-capitalistic things that he saw, right, that were, that were going on. Now, I think the importance of, of Rousseau is, you're right, he was opposed to reason, but I don't think he was that original or that deep when it came to knowledge issues or, or epistemological issues. What uh, Rousseau's contribution is, is a kind of fiery normative collectivism, right? He is really angry, right, about individualism and technology and the rise of inequalities. Uh, 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 just to interrupt you there, sorry. Sure. Uh, that's why I tried to separate him from Kant and said that we can trace uh, postmodernism in the epistemological level to Kant, yes, and not right. to Rousseau, right? Yes, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. Although some of the uh, some of the uh, postmoderns will adopt a kind of Rousseauian right epistemology that valorizes instincts and feelings. Uh, as our guides to what we're supposed to think and uh, and, and as guides to action. Yes, um, yeah, so to go back to uh, to Rousseau, I do think he is the first counter-enlightenment figure. And, you know, in some ways he's, uh, he, he's trying to strike a pose and be the bad boy of the 18th century. Uh, but at the same time, he is very perceptive in saying, here are all of the important modernist themes, right? Individualism, right, liberty, science, right, technology, free speech, uh, toleration in religion, separation of church and state, and the overall individualism and so on. And he's very systematic in saying, I'm opposed to this, I'm opposed to this, I'm opposed to this. And his reason primarily is that he thinks uh, it, uh, it drives people against each other and uh, sets people up for, for a, a radical inequality that's just going to become rigidified in various political structures, right? And, uh, and so he wants to, to, uh, to reject the entire modern Enlightenment project. Now, it's interesting, if you look at, uh, this is the jump ahead, at, uh, to Foucault and some of the other postmoderns, some of Foucault's rhetoric uh, very much sounds like uh, Rousseau. Uh, you find some of the same themes. And one of the things that does come out, we might talk about this a little later, is that as the uh, as the postmoderns, while they're on the left, right, politically, are modifying and rejecting some elements of Marxism, classical Marxism, what they do find themselves doing is reinvigorating certain Rousseauian themes. Uh, and so, in some ways, you know, Rousseau is in the 1800s, Marx is in the 1900s certain strong segments of left thought are initially attracted to kind of Rousseauianism, but then they go through a long Marxist phase, but they end up in a kind of updated Rousseauianism, and that's an important element of postmodernism.
Mm-hmm. Okay, so getting back to Kant and now yeah. following with the epistemological path, let's say. Uh, so after Kant, uh, it's, uh, it gets started a wave, let's say, in philosophy that we could call German idealism. With, yes. with great figures like Hegel in the 19th century and then uh, in parallel, let's say, because it also has some of Kant's ideas at its basis, we also get Romanticism uh, sure. in which, uh, and Irrationalism, uh, b- both paths that, that uh, have as a great figure Nietzsche, for example. Yes. Sure. So, so, what are the importance of German idealism, romanticism, and irrationalism, particularly during the 19th century, that then uh, have uh, an influence on postmodernism? Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. I, I see it as dividing into two main reactions to Kant. So, if we take an earlier summary, where Kant says, in principle, there's no way by... Uh, reason to get from the subject to the object, right, or from the phenomenal realm to the noumenal realm. Uh, there are two reactions. One reaction, I think, is going to be the Hegelian reaction, right, which is to say, you know, philosophy really is all about the noumenal, right, uh, and we should still be striving to get to the noumenal. And so, what we need to do is, rather than say, you know, there is an objective world out there, and the subjective world is a different kind of thing. Let's say it's a physical world out there, and then a psychological world in here. What the Hegelian move is, is to identify right, the, the subject with the object. But to say that what really is going on is what we call the object really is just a giant subject, right? a subject with a capital S. Right, so if there is no metaphysical difference in kind between the object out there and the subject, then we can bridge that gap that Kant had provided to us. So what Hegel then ultimately is arguing is, uh, metaphysically, if we can understand all of reality as a kind of a giant mind, right, a god or a divine spirit, right, or, 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 or some sort of subject with a capital S, and that what it is doing is struggling through history to realize a kind of self-realization, a self-realization, quite cognitively speaking, and that our minds, right, our little minds, are really just an aspect, right, of the, the great mind, right, that is out there, then we can uh, metaphysically bridge this gap, right, and so we're all just part of the divine reality coming to realize itself. So you, then you have that movement, and that there's kind of a necessary self-realization project, and we're all part of it. Um, so this, you know, you can see this as a secularization of the traditional uh, Judeo-Christian right worldview. So that in the beginning, you know, there is God, and God is a giant spirit, right? But then God has projected Himself out into the world, and we are all aspects of God. And the goal just ultimately is to come to re-realize and re-understand our connection to God. And then all of us right, will collectively come to be part of God, right, once again, right, at the, at the end of history. So Hegel is offering a somewhat secularized, right, version of that. Now that uh, um, <clears throat> more collectivized notion, so we shouldn't be thinking of ourselves really as individual minds knowing 
an objective material or physical reality, but in some sense we're all connected to a great spiritual mind. Now the postmoderns are not going to accept all of that metaphysics, but the collectivism right starts there. Another important part of Hegel is uh, the the uh, the embrace of contradiction and what he called the dialectic method. Right? So. According to right, the moderns and the Enlightenment thinkers, contradiction is a big sin right, in your thinking. It's a sign that something has gone wrong uh, and that we need to do more work to eliminate the contradiction. What you find in Hegel is an embracing right, of contradiction, right? that reality is inherently contradictory and it works itself out through a kind of dynamic, dynamic rather, of, of contradiction. Now again, you can find uh, Judeo-Christian precursors right to this you know the idea that ultimately god is a mystery or we can't understand how god can be omniscient and we have free will or we can't make sense of the trinity right it doesn't make sense to us right or you know god uh, making promises to abraham but then demanding that he sacrifice his son isaac we can't compute that so we just kind of accept contradictions and live with them so that's a precursor uh, but what we do then find, again, not in a religious form, but by the time we get to the postmoderns, is the idea that contradiction is not really a problem, right? That the, there's contradiction is uh, kind of built into the uh, the nature of how the human mind work and our, our dynamic. So that's, that's one strain. Now, the other strain, I think, is a more explicitly irrationalistic uh, uh, post-Kantian move. So if you then say Kant has told us that uh, reason is not capable of uh, coming to know an independent reality, okay? uh, what you can then just say is, well, all that shows is that if we're going to come to get uh, to, to, to know reality or understand reality, we just can't use reason, right, to get there. But then maybe there are other uh, cognitive methods that are non-rational or irrational that are going to enable us to get to an external reality. Maybe we should use our feelings, right? Uh, and maybe the kinds of feelings that are evoked by music, right? Because music shuts down our, our rational faculty and allows us to emote and, and to intuit, right, certain things that are deep truths about reality. So we go a more Schopenhauerian direction, right, and he is a post-Kantian operating. Or, right, we might say, as Schleiermacher does in one generation and Kierkegaard in the next generation, it's not so much musical feeling, but it's rather certain other passional, right, feelings, and in many cases they are contradictory that are going on, and we recognize that they are uh, irrational, right, and absurd, but what we need to do to get to the truths, right, and the important things about reality is make a kind of irrational leap, right, into something that we desperately want to be true. And that's how we're going to come to know reality. And then you mentioned Nietzsche, right, in the generation after that, right, Nietzsche is, you know, full of disdain for the intellect, for the power of reason, and what he's offering, right, is the idea that, you know, some of us anyway, very powerful instinct, instincts or urges, right, that have been uh, developed in us by some sort of long evolutionary process. And what we need to do is not try to be scientific and rational and understand the world intellectually, but really drill down into ourselves, find out what our strongest passion and what our strongest instinct is, let that dominate and project ourselves out into the world. And that's our that's our, our, our strongest human birthright. And all of them, in various ways, are 
consciously reacting to the Kantian legacy. They're saying Kant got it right on some fundamental things, so we have to go off in, in this direction. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that uh, kind of explicit irrationalism then is also going to be an, a legacy that the postmoderns pick up in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Right. So, just before we get into Marx, that is, let's say, the economical part or the economical part of the development of postmodernism, uh, let's just talk a little bit about another prominent figure that is Heidegger. Uh, Heidegger yeah. is associated with the uh, with phenomenological philosophy, right? So uh, he he refuses uh, getting back to Kant. He refuses completely the noumenal side of epistemology, the uh, the possibility the, uh, the possibility that we can know the noumenal, and he decides to focus completely on the phenomenal. So uh, and tries to describe. Uh, or to reduce everything in terms of knowledge to describing the phenomena of experience and change. So this is kind of a subjectivist approach to knowledge, right? Right, right. So if you take that uh, subjectivist approach, right, and then you, you talk about Kierkegaard, right, and Kierkegaard is an important precursor. Uh, you know, Kierkegaard is very much right, an individual uh, uh, analyzing his own experiences, his thoughts and his feelings and his urges in various ways. Uh, in the next generation, Nietzsche has a strong reputation for being an individualist and uh, you know, what we need to do is be very perceptive about what's going on in our minds, right, and so forth. So all of that uh, precursors to a phenomenological approach that you find in Heidegger, right, is, uh, is exactly right. Uh, but at the same time, you will also find in Heidegger uh, a kind of collectivism, right, that what you need to do really is embrace your, right, your collectivity, because it's not just you as an individual who's engaging in this uh, self-discovery project. It's rather your group, right, that has certain traditions, uh, and uh, uh, people in your group are embarked on the same project. And the way that you're going to best realize that is by merging yourself right with your collectivity. And then if you read in, uh, uh, in uh, say, What is Metaphysics, that 1920s uh, essay, uh, Heidegger explicitly uh, cites Hegel right, as, as a precursor on the metaphysical point as well, that ultimately right, being and nothing right, are one and the same sort of thing, or there is a kind of an identity of being and nothing, uh, Heidegger says that's exactly right, and so you have, yes, the, the phenomenological method integrated with a kind of group collectivity in the service of still a kind of Hegelian metaphysics, right, ultimately. So it's a, a three-strained package, and so I think what's important, right, about Heidegger in the early part of the 20th century is that he is the one who takes all of the elements, right, of uh, 19th century continental philosophy and puts them together in a package. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. So, and now to get into Marx. Okay. Uh, he has, so as we, uh, as we all know, an anti-capitalist economical approach uh, and he made some predictions that you are also talk about in your book that all sure. of them failed. Yeah. Talk about that. Sure. 
Yeah, uh, Marx uh, was a PhD in philosophy, and while he's kind of most famous for his uh, economic theories, uh, he did have a, an entire philosophical system uh, uh, that was part and parcel of that. Uh, I don't know that Marx is that great as a philosopher. I think he would be a, a minor figure in the history of philosophy if it hadn't been for the kind of successful political revolutions, right, of the of the 20th century. But nonetheless, he does have uh, certain philosophical views and certainly political economic views that resonate, right, with a lot of with a lot of people. And in some ways, it's a it's a relatively simple story that people can can wrap their their minds around, right, because we understand uh, the dynamics of uh, of rich and poor. We know what it's like in our work lives to, uh, to, to, to have the boss-worker dynamic and the ways in which that can be dysfunctional. Uh, Marx, of course, in many respects, like a lot of people in the 19th century, recognized that uh, early modern capitalism and liberalism were revolutionary and there are all of these transformations going on socially and, of course, things are often messy when revolutions right, are, are going on. But yeah, the important thing for the intellectuals, uh, and, and here I would uh, say, uh, just think about how the Marxist intellectuals uh, processed Marx in the generations after him. There was quite early recognition that uh, Marx's theories uh, failed in the sense that uh, if it's supposed to be scientific method, that we have a sociology here, that we have a theory, the theory makes certain predictions, and then we look at the data, uh, the social data, uh, if uh, if uh, the data comports with the theory, then we will take that as confirmation. But if the data goes against the theory, then as social scientists, we should uh, at least modify the theory significantly or reject it outright. So <clears throat> the kinds of predictions that uh, shortly after Marx died, so by the time we get to the end of the 19th century, 1800s, uh, you know, Marx had predicted, you know, that revolution was coming. And uh, there, there were you know, many times right, that revolution did not materialize. So there's a question, why is the revolution not materializing in the most advanced countries like Marx said it was supposed to? Uh, so people are scratching their heads and saying, well, maybe the story is more complicated. And they start to modify Marxism. But the, the important ones, uh, the ones that I uh, highlight right in my book, uh, are you know, if you take the standard Marxist slogan, right, that the, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Right? So that's a claim about the logic of competition, particularly the logic of competition in a free market capitalist society. Right? So Marx then says, you know, essentially every transaction, you have a winner and you have a loser. And as a result of that, the winner gets a little bit richer, the, the, the loser gets a little bit poorer. Right? So people start to, to spread out. And then uh, as we have another round of competition, uh, you know, the rich uh, are in competition with each other. Right? One will win and one will lose. So the richer one gets a little bit richer. Uh, and the poorer was, or the loser, right, then becomes a little bit poorer. So you have a stratification, right, of society. And ultimately, the, uh, the logic is supposed to be that we end up with a lot of people who are very poor at the bottom of capitalism, uh, the, the hierarchy, and a small number of people at the top who are very rich and in control of, of all of the assets. Now, that's the logic of Marx's predictions, but when you start to look at the actual data, even, say, by 1900, 
And certainly as we get on into the 20th century, right, it's the, it's the opposite. The, the number of poor people is shrinking, right, in the, in the capitalist countries, right? Poor people are getting richer, right? Their, their wages are going up. What their wages can buy is going up, right? People are starting to live longer. Their houses are getting bigger. They're having more transportation and entertainment options available to them as, as well. So Marx had said the, uh, the, the proletariat or the poorer classes were supposed to become very, very large, right? But the opposite is the thing that is happening, right? Poverty is becoming much smaller. And then at the other end of the spectrum, rather than it being a smaller number of very rich people in control of all of the resources, what's happening is there's more and more rich people. There's more millionaires and more tens of millionaires and then even billionaires and so on. So the Marxist pyramid where it was supposed to look like this, but the actual result is that right, it goes the other way. And so when you have a series of allegedly social scientific predictions, and all of those predictions are false, uh, then you have to say there's something wrong with the theory. Now, this is widely recognized within right, the Marxist framework. And so you start to see by the end of the 19th century, uh, you know, thinkers like Werner Sombart in, uh, in Germany, uh, you know, rethinking, right, and any number of other people saying, okay, Marxism just doesn't work out, so we need to do some other kind of left thinking. We need a new kind of theory. And then certainly the early part of the 20th century is just dozens and dozens of versions of neo-Marxism as we tweak this, change this, abandon that, bring in these other aspects of theory to try to find some overall synthesis that will retain the core of Marxism, but account for all of the, the various failings of Marxist theory. Mm -hmm. Okay, and now that you're talking, that we're talking about Marx here, and just to clarify another point, uh, every time I discuss with a Marxist and I say that postmodernism has a Marxist uh, theoretical basis, they immediately reply something along the lines of, of "Oh no, Marxism has nothing to do with postmodernism because yeah. they don't usually like to be associated with postmodernism, at least some of them." And sure. Uh, what I usually tell them, and please tell me if this is if this is a fair assessment of it or not, is that uh, there there's not really a relationship of identity between Marxism and postmodernism, but rather a relationship of continuity. Yes, no, that's absolutely right. Uh, there certainly is a continuity, and postmodernism to this day incorporates a significant number of uh, Marxist themes, right? The, the themes of alienation, right? The group dynamics, uh, seeing that all of uh, society is, is organized into adversarial groups, uh, that there is no way rationally and logically and civilly for those uh, groups to engage in discussion and resolve their differences. Uh, all of that is part and parcel, right, of postmodernism. But there have been, obviously, some significant uh, departures from mo modernism. Uh, so, you know, Marxism, to some extent, right, was a, 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 a product of the Enlightenment, right? So, you know, Marx does say there is a kind of iron logic, right? And so there's a logical development that we can understand. But the postmoderns all are rejecting, right, logic wholesale. Marxism classically saw itself as a scientific, right, version Right of uh, of uh, of socialism, 
and the, the postmoderns are rejecting any scientific claims or, or pretensions. Uh, Marxism did ultimately uh, say that, you know, human beings should reach a peaceful and productive uh, 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 society in which everybody lives together, right, uh, in, in prosperity, and the the postmoderns are deeply cynical. They don't ever think that right, is uh, is going to happen. So the way I think of it is that there are three or four kind of significant Enlightenment elements, right, in Marxism, but those are the ones that the postmoderns reject. So when they say we're not Marxist, right, they are right, right, in some ways, right, they've rejected the Enlightenment elements of Marx, but they have definitely retained the uh, the core uh, Marxist normative claims and much of the uh, the sociological claims, right, that are built into Marxism. So uh, it's, it's uh, I think it's fair to say that there is a continuity right there, uh, um, and that, that postmodernism is in part a neo-Marxism, right, or uh, if you want to put it in provocative terms, it's a Marxist heresy, right, but uh, it adds uh, some uh, some epistemological things that are not there in the original Marx, and uh, as we were suggesting before, it, it reincorporates some Rousseauian themes uh, as well. So there's the, uh, the kind of the Kantian epistemological story, the Rousseauian normative story and the Marxist normative story, and all of them are still operative. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, thank you for that clarification, because now I will finally have someone with enough authority on my channel doing this clarification for my Marxist friends, okay. let's yeah. say. Right. And, and one, one important thing to think about is if you just think of the leading European postmodernists, so uh, Derrida, you know, very sympathetic to the uh, the French Communist right party and publishing in you know, explicitly Marxist and neo-Marxist journals. Uh, Lyotard, you know, editing right very far left and uh, Marxist and quasi-Marxist journals right as well. Uh, 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 Foucault joining the French Communist Party right for some years. Uh, you know, he abandoned the French Communist Party after it became too authoritarian and was just taking orders from Moscow. But uh, you know, even then, in the 1960s, he is a you know a, a, a Maoist, right, and uh, very much in favor of what's going on in communist China. So you know, it's not classical doctrinaire Marxism that we are talking about, but it is uh, certainly informed deeply by Marxist themes. Mm -hmm. And what was the importance of the Frankfurt School in promoting Marxism with, let's say, a new facade and the influence they might have had uh, on postmodernism? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's an important uh, uh, sub-theme. Um, Foucault, right, interestingly said uh, that uh, he wished he'd uh, read the Frankfurt School earlier than he did. So he arrived at his postmodern themes kind of independently uh, uh, through uh, through studying kind of other social manifestations and psychology, uh, but there there certainly is a parallel there, and many of the other postmoderns uh, came to their postmodernism in part from reading people like uh, Derrida, Lyotard, Foucault, and so on, but also more directly from. Frankfurt School thinking. Well, so the important point here is, uh, you know, the, the Frankfurt School thinkers are again uh, informed by a kind of Marxism, but recognizing that classical Marxism has all sorts of failings to it. It's just not, it's not working out. 
Right. And so what uh, what they're doing is saying, you know, if you take, for example, the Marxist theme that as a result of the exploitation and alienation, right, that is built into capitalism, what is supposed to happen is that the workers are to realize their oppression, to realize their exploitation and to develop a kind of class consciousness. And then they will organize themselves and realize that they are being exploited and then uh, on the basis of that realize they have the superiority of numbers and then revolt against the capitalists, take over the means of production and then usher in some kind of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, socialist society. And so what the Frankfurt schools are realizing right after World War I especially is that that's not happening, right? That the, the workers in the capitalist societies don't seem to be feeling that alienated, right, and oppressed. Instead, what's happening is they are uh, uh, buying cars, right? They are buying houses, right? They're going to the movies. Their lives seem to be fine. They seem to be relatively content. You know, they may not love their jobs, and there might be gripes and complaints here, but by and large, in the capitalist countries, the, the lives of the workers, right, is, uh, is pretty good. So why is the exploitation of capitalism not manifesting itself in the psychology, right, of the, of the workers? So the insight of the Frankfurt School, right, is then to say that uh, in addition to the Marxist economic and sociological analysis, we need to have a better psychology, right? We need to have a more rich, robust psychological theory. And so what they would say is, you know, Marxism with its very strong tabula rasa uh, or blank slate understanding of the human mind is much too primitive uh, a theory of psychology. So what we need to understand is that uh, human psychology is much more complicated and so they started to look to the leading early 20th century psychologists uh, for an understanding of why psychologically uh, things are going the way they're doing. So naturally, at that point, you would look to Freud, uh, who with his psychoanalytic theory, uh, you know, a very different metaphysical basis from, uh, from, uh, from Marx's. But what Freud is, uh, is, is very interestingly doing is arguing that a lot of neurotic things, a lot of psychological contradictions and tensions, that human beings are very good at repressing those, uh, driving them underground, and then telling themselves consciously a kind of a nicer and prettier story about what their lives right, are all about. And that also when we grow up and we are being socialized by our parents and the civilization that we are raised in, that civilization exerts great efforts to cause us to repress certain dark, conflictual, unpleasant things that are going on in our minds to drive them deep down right inside of us. So what the Frankfurt School thinkers are, are doing in, in one of their main programs is saying what we need to do is to take those Freudian right insights about repression right of conflict and unpleasant ideas and uh, incorporate those into a new Marxist synthesis. So 
they're convinced, right, as Marxists, right, that Marx is right. You know, there is alienation, there is conflict, there is oppression, right, in capitalist society. But what capitalist society is very good at doing is causing the victims of the exploitation and the oppression to internalize it and to repress it in themselves. So the workers, right, think right? That, oh, my life is good. I just bought a new car. I just bought a house, right? I love these movies, right? And, uh, and, and I'm feeding my family. So they think that that life is good, but that just means that they have bought into the propaganda, right, of the capitalist system and all of the con conflicts and the doubts and the alienation that they're feeling, they have just internalized it and repressed it, right, in various ways. So as a result of that, then the Frankfurt School says what we need is to have some sort of psychological methods that, uh, uh, that we can develop to help the workers and the exploited people realize the true extent of their alienation. So that we can't really under expect rather the workers and the exploited proletariat to understand for themselves how terrible their lives are and that capitalism is at fault. We, the sophisticated thinkers, are the ones who are going to have to figure it out for them and and uh, and then lead them in some way to realize their alienation and mount a revolution. So, something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, now to get into the great postmodern thinkers, in your book you identify Michel Foucault, Jean-François uh, Jean Lyotard, Jacques Derrida, uh, and Richard Rorty as the great postmodernists, the ones whose ideas and philosophy set let's say, the foundations for what would become known as postmodernism, right? Yes, right. In my judgment, those are the, the four deepest of the first generation postmoderns. Yeah. And what's important about them is uh, uh, if you put the dates to them, all of them are born in the 1920s or early 1930s. And uh, so they come to uh, their, their intellectual maturity in the 1950s, and that's when they are uh, receiving their doctoral degrees uh, and launching themselves in their in their profession. So they're all you know very intelligent, right, young men. Uh, all of them deeply engaged with politics, and particularly politics at the far left end of the political spectrum. But at the same time, they're all four of them getting PhDs in philosophy. Uh, Foucault also has a degree in uh, in psychology. Uh, and as part of their philosophical training, they are getting a first-rate uh, uh, education in, uh, in, uh, in epistemology. And so they know very well the entire story, right, from Kant on through, you know, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Heidegger, uh, and the failures of, the, of the, the logical positivist tradition as well. So by the time you get to the 1950s, we have, you know, four young guys, but at the height of their power, who are extraordinarily well-educated, and they're the ones who put together the new synthesis. Uh, and of course, they have disagreements among themselves on, on various uh, sub-important points, but overall, broadly, that package is the one that comes to dominate uh, by the time we get to the 1960s and into the 1970s. And they are the ones then who have the deserved reputation for being the leading uh, first-generation postmoderns. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, and uh, postmodernism had a lot of influence in the social, cultural, and political movements in the 60s and 70s, and, yeah. it, and it even had a lot of influence in the creation of certain 
social studies uh, like women's studies, black studies, gay studies and so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah. And, and then uh, it also, um, for example, certain scientific disciplines like sociobiology in the 70s and 80s got a lot of backlash coming from these areas and then in the in the 90s we also got the development of third wave feminism so to get to the current situation because uh, i get from some uh, from certain people uh, the idea that we already got some uh, uh, peak activities let's say from postmodernism against science Uh, and in the political realm in other uh, in previous decades and now we're going through another one and those people say that this is just a temporary thing and that it will go away what, what mm -hmm. is your opinion do you think that that it, it is really a temporary thing or, yeah. or, or that now it has certain particular traits that render it different from what we had before Yeah, uh, uh, I think all of those things have uh, strong elements of truth in them. That entire summary, right? That you that you gave, <clears throat> you know, Foucault, uh, Derrida, Rorty, and so on. They are prominent in the 1960s and the 1970s. So I would think of that as first wave, right? Postmodernism, and uh, 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 it's coming out of philosophy. But interestingly. While philosophy reaches that skeptical moment right, during that generation, philosophy then moves on by the time we get to the 1980s, 1990s, and so on. And so in my view, philosophy is, is much healthier. Uh, it, it has all of the skeptical elements right in it, but there are philosophers working on what I think of as real problems, progressive problems, uh, uh, philosophy as it ought to be done. So what has happened, though, is, uh, as you suggested, that those philosophical arguments really were taken over by other disciplines. So the philosophically minded thinkers in sociology, in anthropology, in literary criticism, and so on, and in some of the other uh, humanities and social sciences, they largely embraced postmodern philosophy and then applied it to their right, specific disciplines. And in many cases, that worked in the traditional disciplines. So... <clears throat> many sociology departments, right? That was an established disciplines, right? Became postmodern, anthropology departments, right? And so on. But at the same time, part of postmodernism is to say we should not think about human beings as human beings really anymore. There's no such thing as a universal human nature or, the, or, or, or rights and normative principles like, like the right to life, the right to liberty and so on that apply to all human beings. Instead, we have these various race, class, and gender, right, uh, 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 or ethnicity, right, designations. And so part of the postmodern package is to say that we have to understand all of these different groups as having their own epistemology, right, so to speak. And if we're going to then understand each group, we have to have specialized departments that are able to, uh, to focus on each group. So, yes, then you do get the various racial departments that, that come into, a, into, into existence, uh, the various gender right, departments uh, or the ethnicity right, departments. And those are being created in the 70s and 80s right, and on, uh, on into the 90s. And at that point then, by the time we get to the 90s, we're in kind of a second wave right, of, of postmodernism. And that is 
the theory of postmodernism as it's developed by Foucault, Rorty, and so on, then becomes institutionalized in the university in various right departments. And so there has been dramatic uh, restructurings of departments, very dramatic changes of the reading list and what counts as a curriculum element right in various universities. And now that is 20 uh, years behind us, and so we are into a third generation of postmodernism. And then what we have really are students and now mid-career professors who were trained in the 1990s, right, and so on. Uh, and so they are obviously, in, in, my, in my reading, most of them are much less intellectual, right? In many cases, they do not know the philosophy very well. You know, they, they, can, they can talk the talk for five minutes, right, or so. But what they are, are really interested in saying, we don't need to know these arguments. We don't need to know the philosophy. Uh, we don't really need to try to talk to people outside of our own group. The important thing now is just action, right? getting things done. Uh, we know what we believe. We know what we are committed to. And we are just passionately trying to, by any tactics, uh, achieve our agenda inside the university and outside the end. So you have a, a strong anti-intellectual uh, pro-activist, uh, uh, even to the point of physical confrontation uh, movement, and that's what we are experiencing now in the third generation. Now then, will that last? Um, I would like to think it will last, you know, partly because as a person who's interested in ideas, you know, the, the, the postmodern ideas, uh, you know, if you read the big names, they are interesting, but they've been absorbed, and, uh, and I think there's now a lot of smart people who are responding to them uh, to a long, large extent? Postmodernism was able to get attraction because people who were working on interesting intellectual projects just said, "Hey, that's kind of ridiculous. I'm not going to pay attention to it for a long time." And so, uh, in the vacuum, right, uh, many of the postmoderns were able to institutionalize themselves. I also like to think uh, that it is a universal human trait among young, smart energetic, ambitious people, that they want to make something significant of their lives. And if you are healthy uh, as a young person, uh, the postmodern cynicism and uh, jadedness and the idea of ultimate futility uh, of everything and that we have to just uh, see everybody as our adversarial enemies and there's no tolerance and respect that that's going to be alienated to the smart, energetic, younger people, right, who are coming on. So they will be less attracted to uh, to postmodernism. Uh, I do think uh, this is a slight psychological speculation, uh, but uh, it's largely anecdotal. I do think that uh, postmodernism does push some negative psychological buttons, and it does uh, find itself attractive to people who are disturbed and alienated for reasons that may not be intellectual or, or, uh, or, or philosophical, right, at all. But nonetheless, uh, the postmodern themes, right, of, of cynicism and adversarialism gives a voice to psychological issues that are going on in them. Uh, and so it attracts a subsegment of the population that are already kind of psychologically, right, problematic. I don't know if that is coming through, but there's a a, uh, a tornado yeah, 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 testing so thing that's going yeah. on, so it'll probably yeah. go on for for a minute or so. Sorry about that, but I can't control it. No, no, no problem. Right. So uh, I do think that now enough smart people are starting to engage with postmodernism, right? Not just in philosophy, but in all of the major disciplines. So there's very strong intellectual pushback, 
and I do uh, see, especially among younger people, you know, people your age and so forth, a, a lot more activity, right? People saying, you know, postmodernism uh, is crap. Uh, it's not progressive. It's stale. It's uh, it's now three generations old, and it's just been retreading the same old arguments. And we actually want to uh, to figure out what's true. We want to do something good in the world. We think it's possible to make the world a better place, uh, to live beautiful, noble lives. And postmodernism is not right, offering us anything that uh, is enabling us to do so. The big challenge, though, is going to be that postmodernism is now, to some extent, institutionalized. There are a lot of professors uh, in student services departments uh, that have a lot of control over the student life on campuses. There's a kind of monopoly on many uh, universities that are that are postmodern. Uh, so that institutionalization is uh, is a is a battle that has to be fought as well. So it's not then going to be just a, an intellectual battle. It is also an in the trenches politics battle. How it will end out, I can't say. Mm -hmm. So we've just hit one hour. Uh, I'm getting mindful of your time. I don't know Thank if you. you have if you have the time for another question or not. I think yeah, one more quick question should be good. Okay. Okay. So to get right to it. Uh, the difference between uh, what the existentialists done have done and what the postmodernists have done, because I guess that existentialism also has in it certain elements uh, from uh, the, the the philosophical disciplines that were developed, particularly during the nineteenth century. Yes. Yeah, that's another uh, important area, and uh, yeah, lots of articles and books, right, can be can be written on that. Uh, yeah, the existentialists are still doing metaphysics, and while they are kind of non-rational uh, in their epistemology and have typically a, a strong tabula rasa right view of human nature, um, <clears throat> the, the existentialists are an important precursor to right much of uh, much of postmodernism. So one thing you can do is take the, the tabula rasa right idea, uh, that as individuals there is no human nature right at birth. So existence precedes essence, to take uh, Sartre's right formulation, and that uh, we can commit to anything and we can create our identities into whatever we want. If you pitch that at a more collectivized, socialized level, that fits into right postmodernism. There is no such thing as a fixed human nature and so right sociobiology and evolutionary psychologists were going to resist right all of that and so we as a group can make our identities into right whatever right we want and there are no fixed constraints right on that that feeds into uh, into postmodernism certainly also uh, uh, the the normative psychology that's at the root of of uh, of uh, postmodernism the sense of deep alienation, uh, the sense of deep disturbance, right, uh, in, 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 uh, in all of reality and certainly in my reaction to the world. Now, in first-generation existentialism, it's all couched in the death of God or the loss of religion terms. So that sense of, you know, we used to believe that there was something out there, a framework, a guiding, benevolent presence, that ultimately everything is going to work out in the future. If you abandon all of that, then you do have this sense of being right alone and without guidance in this very kind of alienating and perhaps frightening world. 
and uh, you don't know what to do right with your life and there's no sense that there's going to be a, a good ending and then you have the sense that actually the ending is going to be bad <laughs> uh, so all of that existentialist sensibility right gets taken over into right postmodernism uh, now the existentialists though for the most part and I think this is a differentiating point do uh, after they go through that moment have some redeeming normativity that they want to offer, right? So, you know, so Camus, for example, is saying there are values that we can commit to, and once we commit to them, uh, if we commit to them authentically, right, we can create some positive meaning, right, in our lives. And Sartre, in his way, is doing the same thing, and uh, and uh, and Heidegger, in his way, is doing the same sort of thing. So there is a sense that uh, there is a sort of redemption, right, that is is possible. But I think uh, in the postmoderns, they strip that away, right? There is no redemption, right? Instead, uh, in crude form, all that's going to happen is this ceaseless power struggle, and sometimes we will win, and sometimes we will lose, sometimes we will be the victims, and sometimes we will be the victimizers, and life really just is an ongoing, relatively brutal power struggle with no happy ever after ending. So, something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So let's end it there. Dr. Ricks, I would really like to thank you for being on the show. You're one of my intellectual heroes, so well, I, I was you, expecting. <laughs> Sorry? I appreciate that. Very good questions. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. Okay, thank you again. I will just end the recording now and uh, stay on the line just to have a two-minute conversation with, Absolutely. with you, please. So again, thank you and take care. Bye-bye. My pleasure. If you appreciate my work, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dissenter. Thank you.